If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're in 1 Corinthians 15 this week. Uh, Last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and we celebrated the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. This week, we're considering the question, uh, so what? What difference does the resurrection of Christ make in our lives every day? But the way we're going to consider that question is a little different than what you may be used to. You see Adam and I both sitting up here on the platform. The introduction to your sermon notes says, uh, why are two pastors up there? Um, I know it's a little different from, uh, for us. We're going to have a conversation about this. I want you to know it is a planned conversation. Um, Adam and I have been together all week. Monday we left and drove together to Louisville, Kentucky and we're together for the gospel conference all week. Drove back Friday, stayed in the same hotel room together. That is together for the gospel, I think, if you're staying in the same room. And so we've been thinking and talking about these things um, all week. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, is this okay? You're supposed to have like one guy stand and preach. And that's good if you're asking that question because everything we do here at Redeemer Church, we want to be driven by what the Word of God says. And the only things we do in worship are things that God says that it's okay to do in worship. And so this is something our session talked about uh, more than one meeting. And uh, our session did approve that. We don't make these decisions. We are uh, part of a group of elders that together make decisions uh, about life in our church. And for us, if you're in 1 Corinthians 15, probably the most direct passage right before this is in 1 Corinthians 14. And Paul is giving rules for orderly worship. And in verse 29, he says it's okay to let two or three different people speak. Um, in a worship service. And so looking at that, of course, the elders are still to weigh what is said and to determine what's true and what's not true, what's orthodox. Uh, But we felt like there was scriptural precedent there in 1 Corinthians 14. And so we wanted to try this approach. And I want you to hear our heart about it, okay? We're not trying to be different just to be different, just to try something unique. It's not, uh, we don't want to be new just for new's sake. But our heart is for more people to hear the truth of the gospel. And we're still going to have guys stand at the front and preach for 30 or 35 minutes. Um, Some of you are saying, I hope you keep it at 35, right? Um, We're still going to do that here. But if some folks are able to hear more clearly, if we can communicate the gospel more clearly in a, you know, Talk morning talk show environment. I've got my Fruit of the Spirit coffee mug there and, and water. If some folks can hear this format better, we want to declare the gospel in this format as well. So just hear our heart. What we want is for more people to be able to hear this. So, you know, maybe this will turn, you'll think maybe somebody who wouldn't listen to a normal sermon of Redeemer Church, when this is over, you might refer them to the podcast of this talk or this conversation uh, between two guys, and maybe that'll be easier for them to hear. We've never done this before, so be patient with us um, as we attempt to wade into this together. But as we were thinking about this question, we thought 1 Corinthians 15 was a good place to go. And so Adam, why don't you talk about that, how we arrived at 1 Corinthians 15? Yeah, so, you know, we're coming off Easter, so it seemed like an easy way to follow up from just celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Um, And you come to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes several 
pretty significant theological statements um, related to the implications for us of Christ's resurrection. Some that we might not think about, some that you're going to be like, oh yeah, that's, I, that's what I think about every time I think of Christ's resurrection. So, um, but, but what I want to make sure that we understand is like, the resurrection was not just God proving Jesus is the Messiah. Like there was way more than that to it. Um, and so as we get into 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's important for, for us to have some understanding of what's going on in Corinthians. Again, you're probably familiar with this um, home run of a church here in Corinth uh, who has all kinds of issues, right? Um, and if you go back and read through 1 Corinthians, 5, or, uh, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, you'll, you'll see it very quickly. Chapter 3, there's divisions in the church over which pastor is better, me or Scott. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Paul or Apollos, okay? Chapter 5, there's public knowledge of, of this guy sleeping with his stepmother. Chapter 11, the church is getting drunk at the communion table, at the Lord's Supper. Um, you've got folks looking down on other people because they think their spiritual gift is superior to someone else's. And then you come to, to chapter 15, and there's some confusion over the resurrection of the dead. And so there's this argument going on. If you've heard folks say, like, hey, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll mess it up. Well, you can go to Corinth. Okay, it's fine. It's already messed up. So there's all these theological and just kind of practical outworkings of, of the gospel that they're kind of missing. And so Paul's going to address those. And, and he says, listen, the first thing, what the, the utmost important thing is this gospel. Let me read the first four verses of chapter 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. You hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. And so uh, we, that, that is the Reader's Digest version of the gospel, right? Those are, the, those are the, the parts of the gospel that make up the whole of our salvation. And so... Paul's saying, look, this, this gospel um, that is of first importance would help remedy all of these issues that you have. You've forgotten this gospel, and here's the evidence, just those things that we, that we just read. And so Paul writes to remind them of the gospel because they are forgetting it. And unfortunately, we are very like the Corinthian church and that we forget the gospel in all kinds of different ways in our lives. And so that's the kind of the heart of what Scott and I want to remind you of today is that the, the gospel is of utmost importance, but it has all these implications, pretty significant ones. And so we want to focus our intention on verses 12 through 24, because if you go back, we, we sent out an email earlier this week that talked about uh, you guys reading First uh, Corinthians 15, there's so much information here. There's volumes upon volumes that have been written and preached on the, res the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we're trying to narrow it down because 
Uh, we want to get you out of here in a timely fashion. Scott already mentioned, you know, 30 to 35 minutes, so we, we want to try to make that happen. But I want to read these few verses and then pray, and then we'll kind of dive into what we feel like are maybe the two biggest implications of the resurrection of Christ. So let me read verses 12 through 24. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Let me pray for us. God, we do pray that uh, you would... Open our eyes to the truth, that you would hide this truth in our heart. That it would make a difference tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. That this is not just church speak or a good lesson, but it's life-altering truth. And that when we obey it, it glorifies you. It exalts the name of Christ. So, Holy Spirit, would you help us to not just hear this, but obey, respond to it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You've got an outline. We have two points. Aren't you excited? Two preachers, two points. There's a theme here. Um, the first one is, since Christ has been raised, you are no longer in your sin. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the second one. Since Christ has been raised, you will be raised. And the first implication here, this since Christ has been raised, you are no longer in your sin. Um, okay, it's on now. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Usually people don't interrupt you when you're preaching and stuff, but uh, that's what this format's about. Obviously, you've never been a youth minister, but well, go ahead. Well, good, great point. <clears throat> been working with adults for too long. Uh, verse 17, that first point, since Christ has been raised, you are no longer in your sin, you were saying, but it, it strikes me in verse 17 where he says, and if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. So talk to me about that a little bit to me. Why would Christ not being raised make my faith in him futile? Um, I think you looked up the definition of futile. We looked up a lot of definitions this week. We heard Sinclair, Ferguson, and Alistair Bay. We had to look up words they were using and stuff. What was futile? We had a definition for that. Um, where were so, it's capable of producing any useful result or pointless. That's yeah, so why would my faith be, be useless or incapable of producing any result if Christ had not been raised? 
I guess my question is, isn't the death of Christ alone enough? Like we read uh, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. So I've committed sin. If Jesus died for my sin, why would that not be enough? Why is the resurrection important in knowing that I'm no longer in my sin? Why isn't just the death of Christ enough? So I think in short, I would just say because without the resurrection, there's no assurance of pardon. There's, I mean, we, the truth is there, but if Jesus dies and he stays in the grave, uh, then we don't, we don't know that God accepted what he did for us on our behalf. And, and the reason I say that is I go all the way back to the Old Testament in Exodus 28 where um, they're talking about the, uh, the high priest's garments, which sounds like a weird place to go to answer this question, but uh, the high priest had an ephod, which is kind of like this outer covering, and it had bells on it because the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and as long as they could hear the bells jingling, you know, they knew he was alive. That because he was in the presence of God, and God is very serious about how he's to be worshipped. And so if they stopped hearing the bells, they would know, hey, the high priest is dead. He did something wrong. He disobeyed God. Also, Jewish tradition says the high priest has a rope tied around his ankle because they can't go in, right? They're not the high priest, so they got to pull this dead guy back out. So the, the way that you knew the sacrifice was acceptable was that the high priest walked out alive. That's how we knew the sacrifice had been accepted by God, and that's exactly what we celebrated last week, right? That Christ came. He's not only the sacrifice, but he's the high priest, and he gives himself for our sins, and he's in the tomb, but three days later, he walks out alive, which the Jewish crowd would have 100% connected to the high priest's sacrifice and him coming out alive being, hey, God, God accepted this sacrifice for me. So, um, so it satisfied the Lord, and that ought to make a huge difference in our lives, right? I mean, there, there's implications there of it's not just about eternal life. Hey, I'm going to get to live with God in all eternity. That is great. That is a, I mean, can it, inexplicable blessing of Christ's um, covering our sins, but but it ought to lift the burden off of us as we deal with our own sin. Because if if God has accepted what Christ has done on our behalf, then it's not about what we do. It's not about our works. It's not about, you know, I just need my good deeds to outweigh my bad so I can kind of turn, you know, tilt the scales in in my favor. And so it's, it's, um, it's extremely important uh, f- for us to trust that Christ has done that. And it, maybe you're here and this is the first time you've heard this, like trusting Christ for salvations. But we would encourage you to cast your sins upon the Lord because they've been dealt with. How do we know? Because our high priest is risen. Christ is alive. God has accepted what he did on the cross as perfect good meeting his requirements and so maybe you're here and you've heard you've been in church a million times but again i'd encourage you to cast your sins upon christ whether it's the first time or the millionth time because that is god's appointed means to deal with your sin and so i just encourage you uh, to do that that's that's the gospel that paul's trying to remind these people of these messed up 
folks who are doing all these sinful things, Paul's saying, hear this gospel. And we want you to hear this gospel and live in this gospel. And so these truths not only have implications for today and how we deal with our sin, how we walk in, the, in freedom with Jesus, but it points us to eternity. And Paul says that um, when he talks about if, if, um, if we in Christ have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, he's pointing us to eternity. So it's not just about dealing with sin in this life. He's saying there's hope in the future. Um, and so these, these implications help us fight sin, and I think that's pr- probably the one thing that I want to make sure is clear uh, as we talk about if, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile. And in other words, if, if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sin. Our sin hasn't been effectively dealt with, and we just weren't made to deal with our own sin. Like, God did not create us to bear the weight of our own sin. And, and it has to be dealt with through Christ. And so as we fight sin, sometimes we feel like if we just kind of pull up our bootstraps and try hard enough, we can overcome whatever sin we're dealing with. But, but Paul is saying that's not true because really the only, and I didn't come up with this, this phrase, the only sin that can be defeated is a sin that has been forgiven. And so you have to understand that your sin has been covered, removed by Christ's work on the cross, as far as the east is from the west. But here's the other thing you've got to remember. And Paul says this in Romans 8:11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, if you've been justified, if you've been saved, if you've had God stamp his approval on your eternal record, then you have the Holy Spirit in you. He's put his spirit in you. That's what Ezekiel 36 says. And that same powerful spirit that raised Jesus is at work in you. Come on. And That's sometimes right. we, we just ignore that mm-hmm. or we underestimate the power and we say things like, well, I, I just can't fight this temptation. Or we say things like, I'll never, I'll never get over this particular sin. And I'm not saying there's not a struggle there and there's a fight. You, again, you point you to Paul in Romans 7 where there's, there's a real battle between good and evil within us. But the same spirit that raised Jesus is at work in you. That's one of the benefits to Christ being resurrected. His his uh, payment being taken, accepted by the Lord. So, it, and Paul makes these, this connection here, even in 1 Corinthians 15, if you look at verse 34, which we didn't read. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. In other words, in light of this, this should help you fight against your sin. If you know that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Listen, your faith... My faith, if we're trusting Christ, is not futile. Because the object of our faith is not futile. The object of our faith is omnipotent, mm. all-powerful, in complete control. Amen. I read somewhere there it says, And greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, yeah. 1 John 4, 4. Um, 
yeah, so as I'm looking at this, you know, we have eternal life. Um, it helps us in our fight against sin and temptation. Um, I'm also, um, you know, I think one of the implications that Paul gets to later in the text is it helps us in our service of God. And as we do kingdom work and do things um, and as we serve God. You know, some people come to me and I'm like, well, how can we get you involved in doing stuff at the church? How can we get you, you know, we talk about path that we pray and are in the word every day. We attend on Sunday. We take time to be in some kind of smoke. And then we have a personal ministry. And as I'm trying to help people find what their personal ministry is, whether that's within the walls or outside the walls of the church, some people say, look, you don't know what I've done in my past, right? You don't know the things that I've done, the things I've been involved in. And because of those things, I just don't think I can be used of God. I don't think I can serve him. I don't think that is possible. And I have to just be real honest and say, no, I don't know everything that you have done in the past. That is true. But what I do know is that God uses broken and messed up people like you and like me to accomplish his purposes, in fact, those are the only kind of people God uses, right? Because we're all broken and messed up, right? Think about that sermon series in Abraham that we're going to finish up. We'll get back to next week. I mean, he only tries to give his wife away as his sister two times, right? Once to Pharaoh, once to Abimelech. He, you know, has all these doubts. Um, when he can't have a child he has a, with his wife, he has one with her handmaid um, outside the bounds of their marriage. When God says, no, I really am going to give you a child with your wife, he laughs in God's face. And, you know, when Hagar and Ishmael begin to cause problems, I mean, they basically turn them out in the wilderness to die of exposure. I mean, this is not like, um, I mean, he's really a, a coward and a doubter um, and is not, you know, the hero that we make him to be. In fact, the Bible seems to go out of its way to show the flaws in all the biblical characters that we look up to, I think, to make this point, because God still uses Abraham, and God still uses us despite our sin. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, all of our sin is forgiven in the past, and in the present, and in the future. You know, I get surprised by stuff that I do, but God's not surprised by those things, and we are still forgiven for those things. And in fact, Paul makes that application at the end of the chapter. If you look at the last verse there in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so I think that's another one of the implications. Eternal life um, the, helps us to fight sin and temptation and then also helps us to persevere uh, in kingdom service. You got anything else on that point one? I think that's good. Well, let's look at point two. I want to keep it moving here. Um, Point two that we've got there is since Christ has been raised, you also will be raised. Since Christ has been raised, you also will be raised. Now see that in verses 20 and 23 if you want to look at those. And in fact, I'm going to read this. And Paul mentions something about Jesus that he's going to say two times. For be, so be listening for that in the text. All right, I'm going to ask you. You ready? He's going to say it twice. You ready? Right. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Did you get that, what he said twice there? I did. What did he say? Jesus is what? First fruits. First fruits. Twice he says that. Now, I don't know about you, that's not a, a word I use a whole lot, first fruits. And it's funny, we were laughing about um, Adam was, was helping us understand that first point by going to the Old Testament in the high priest's garment. And I'm about to go Old Testament on you again. Leviticus 23 is the festival of first fruits. But we were laughing saying, you know, it's funny that both of these points, in order for us to understand the New Testament, we have to understand the Old Testament. And one of the reasons we don't read the New Testament rightly a lot of times is because we don't know our Old Testament. And we're the only people in the world who think we can just pick up a book and start reading a two-thirds of the way into it and just only read the last third and think we're going to understand what's going on. But that's a different sermon for a different day. All right, Leviticus 23, you can go in there and read, and God tells Moses that when the children of Israel enter the promised land, they're supposed to celebrate this festival of the first fruits. And so at the first harvest of the year, which in this area of the world is usually barley, usually in the springtime, they were to bring a sheaf of the barley and bring it with some other sacrifices to the priest and the priest would hold up the sheaf and wave it before the Lord as they made sacrifices and the text is very specific in Leviticus 23 that this is to be done on the day after the Sabbath remember that okay the day after the Sabbath is when they're supposed to raise up this sheaf so what's going on in this festival of the first fruits why does God have the people do this well what he is training his people to do is to give them a reminder to thank God for the provision that he makes. It's like Thanksgiving, right? We remember, and we're taking time to remember that God has provided the things that we have. And so it taught the people to say, thank you, God, for these first fruits of the harvest. And since you've been so faithful to provide these first fruits, we we're already starting to see the fruits of our labor we know that you're going to be faithful to provide a bountiful harvest at the end of the season. So that's what the festival of the first fruits was like. So how is Jesus the first fruits? Well, Paul's saying here, if he raised Christ from the dead, the first fruits of those who were going to be raised, that because he's, we have this first harvest when Christ is raised from the dead, we know at the end of the season, at the end of the age, that God's going to be faithful to raise a bunch of people from the dead. All those who are in Christ are going to be raised. Little point there. Do you know when Christ was raised from the dead? Do you want to guess? day after the Sabbath. The day after the Sabbath. It's funny how that connects, doesn't it? Right? Crucified on Good Friday. Saturday would be the Jewish Sabbath. And then we worship on Sunday because that's Resurrection Day, the day after the Sabbath. So uh, what do we say? Ain't God good that way? So, But there are a lot of implications, the fact that we're going to be raised from the dead as well. Why don't you talk about some of those? Well, I think the, fir the first one for me, as we were kind of talking about this is think about the new heaven and the new earth uh, that we'd be um, resurrected with a physical body and I think a lot of times in culture just in, in various cultures that we think of heaven the afterlife as some ethereal place uh, I'm reminded of Looney Tunes 
uh, particularly Sylvester the cat. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, then your parents weren't good parents. They, they didn't set you in front of the TV with Looney Tunes, then you missed something. But like Sylvester the cat, you know, after he's been hit in the face a few thousand times with the frying pan, you know, he like floats up to heaven and he gets little wings and a halo and he plays a harp and he sits on a cloud. And if you read the Bible cover to cover, I don't even think that's close to the picture being painted of heaven. Um, honestly, the new heaven and the new earth sound a lot more like the great theologian Hank Williams Jr. Um, his song "If Heaven Ain't a Lot Like Dixie," you know, that, I don't like, want to go. Yeah, there's like, there's like physical things going on there, right? There's singing, there's people. I mean, there's, and so when we look at this, and we look at even Jesus's resurrected body, it's it's a physical body, right? He eats with his disciples. I mean, he's got scars that Thomas can feel with his with his hands, and so. Uh, it's not just some ethereal, and I say that because when I see Sylvester the cat on the cloud playing his harp, okay, I'm like, I, I don't want to go, right? Hank Jr. would be proud, um, you know. I don't, I don't want to go to that kind of heaven. It looks horrible, right? But as you read what the Bible says about the new heaven and the new earth, it gets me really, really excited that... We have these physical bodies that we're going to eat, that we're going to interact with each other. That, that it, all the times in the Bible it talks about the, the kingdom coming to earth. I mean, Jesus prays that way, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this kingdom is coming down in Revelation uh, to be here on this earth. And so we'll experience natural beauty. I mean, it's not like God's just going to crumble up this earth and throw it away. Really, when Christ says, I'm making all things new, he's saying, I'm renewing all things. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean this mess up, and we're going to live together for all eternity in this glorified earth. Yeah. And so it's, it'll be even better than Eden. You know, Eden, there was a possibility to sin, and the glorified heaven, that's taken away. There's no possibility of sin. God will wipe every tear from our eye. And, and that's the part, I think, when I think about eternal life, it's not just the living forever, because, I mean, Sylvester, the cat, was living forever, and that didn't look very fun, uh, fulfilling. But this idea of the new heaven and the new earth where abundance flows and uh, we're interacting with one another and we're praising the Lord uh, just kind of gets me real excited. Absolutely. I think, you know, you're right. That image in, in Revelation 21, that it's not that we go up to heaven, it's that heaven, the new heavens come here to us. The new Jerusalem comes down. And I, I, you're right. I mean, there in what, verse 5 or so, God says, behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, behold, I'm making all new things, right? So that's not the crumple of the paper. He's making all things new. So, uh, we're going to continue to enjoy. Isaiah talks about we're going to plant vineyards and enjoy them. We're going to build houses. We're going to, uh, in the new heaven and the new earth in particular, you know, we're going to do those things, interact with nature. That's going to be possible because there's a physical resurrection. Um, but it's not only that we'll be raised in the future, and so, yes, we enjoy eternity, that kind of eternity. It also has implications for the here and now, Right? What that means is that this world matters. 
You, you do know that's why Christians care about this world, right? That's why Christians started hospitals, because God is making all things new, and so we're about the restoration of all things. That's why Christians care about the environment. That's why Christians care about um, injustice. That's why Christians care about poverty. You know, we can get real focused on just spiritual things, but if God is making all things new, then that means he cares about this creation enough that he's going to fix it and fix what's broken and messed up. And that means that, that we want to make the world a better place because God cares about this physical world. That's kind of big and cosmic, you know, for millennials, that's enough. Yeah, we're going to make the world a better place. Yes, that's enough. If you're some generations, we want something a little more personal, a little more individual, and I think we can do that, right? Because I will live forever in a renewed creation in this glorified state without sin, better than Eden that you're talking about, because that's true, watch this. What that means is, I don't have to have it all in this life. You see that? As Americans, we're lied to that we need to get all we can get right now. And Paul said, if you don't believe that Christ was raised from the dead and you don't believe we're going to be raised from the dead, he says in this chapter, well, then you ought to just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die and there's not anything else. But because we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise us from the dead, then we don't have to have everything now. I don't have to get everything. I don't have to go and see every place on the earth that I want to see, right? I'm going to see it in the new heavens and the new earth. It'll be better than anyway, right? It means I can be generous with my stuff. I can give stuff away because I don't have to accumulate things now in this because I'm not living for this life. I'm living for the life to come, and so it should transform us. I don't know. Maybe you get discouraged uh, by the state of the world and the brokenness, the way things are. I know I do, right? I get down when I hear about things that happen as I struggle with my own sin. Um, I get discouraged uh, when I see pain and suffering in the world, when I hear you talk about the things you're facing, when I listen to the news. Or if you weren't depressed before you came in here, man, that offertory Lee saying will put you in a depression, right? I mean, man, that thing is sad, right? And listen, it is appropriate that we grieve those things that are going on in the world at this time. But what that song makes that song so good is he's able to keep going even in the midst of great brokenness and hurt. But he's willing to go on because his hope is in that Jesus had, has been raised from the dead and we're going to be raised. And so that's what our hope is. And sometimes we get too focused on the brokenness of the world, and we shouldn't ignore it. It's appropriate to grieve those things. But let's not forget Jesus did raise from the dead, and God's going to raise us from the dead. And so that means, yes, we can resist temptation to sin because the spirit of the resurrected Christ lives in us. It means that God's begun to reverse the effects of the fall because he's already conquered sin and death. It means that he's begun redeeming what's broken and messed up and using broken and messed up people that he's making new to make this world new. And if Jesus is the first fruits, that means God's just getting started, right? That the resurrection's only the first fruits. That God is going to continue to make all things new. So when you get discouraged, and there's a lot to be discouraged about, 
the resurrection of Christ, remembering his resurrection, knowing that God's making all things, knowing we will be raised in a glorified body on a glorified earth can give us great hope and it can be a great cause of joy and optimism and allow us to keep going in the things that we face. So keep those things in mind. There are so many other implications of this, so many other things to think about. We're just barely scratching the surface. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, we, we want to encourage you guys as you leave here, like to have tangible things to do. As Scott's mentioned some of those, I, I'm thinking back to that first point of, um, you know, since Christ has been raised, our sins have been dealt with. Um, and that because they are forgiven, we can fight against them. We can overcome those. Um, and I and I mentioned this before. We're, we're not made to deal with our own sin. And um, it it brought back to mind we had taken a trip with Katie's family to see her aunt and uncle in Arkansas, and they lived up in the Ozarks. And so they took us swimming one day down at these this big, nice, beautiful, uh, almost looked like a river, but kind of a big creek that was crystal clear, gorgeous. So we set up on one side and the kids are playing, but across the, the creek was this big rock that everybody was jumping off of and it looked so enticing. And so I swam over there, jumped off the rock, and it was a pretty good little ways, but not, not terribly far. But the problem was at the time, Jay Thomas was really small, he was not a strong swimmer, and he really, really wanted to, to get on the rock and jump off. And so I said, okay, get, get on my back, and I'll swim across with you on my back, and you, you can have a turn jumping off the rock. And so I take off. For about the first 10 feet, I'm doing great, okay? Problem is there's like 80 more to go. Because um, I don't know if y'all have noticed, but I'm not in the peak shape of my life. Um, and so I'm swimming, and we, we kind of get out to like the deepest part of this where it's, it's way over my head kind of situation. And I'm like, dude, I'm, I might not make it. Like, I may drown and kill my son in the process because I don't know if he's going to be able to swim any farther. And I, I was panicking. And it was one of those situations where I was like, I don't know if I'm really going to make it. Like, I mean, is the weight of Jay Thomas going to kind of, like, push me under this water? And he and I are both just about to see Jesus face to face. Um, and so when, when we were talking earlier about just the, the, the weight of sin, like that, that kind of came to mind. And I would just encourage you guys to, to not be weighted down by your sin. And it's like, oh, Adam, that's so easy, you know. Just, okay, I won't do it. No, it, you take that sin and you cast it at the feet of Jesus. And you do that a thousand times a day if that's what it takes. And you keep repenting, and you keep turning away from sin and turning back to God. And like I said earlier, if it's the first time or the millionth time, but that's what sin does if we don't deal with it. It just keeps pushing us down and pushing us down until we absolutely feel like we're drowning in shame and guilt and the, uh, under the weight of our sin. But that's why we have Jesus, because through his life, death, his resurrection, he, he takes that weight and he gives us an easy yoke and a light burden that's what we trade our the weight of our sin in for and so we can do what the writer of hebrews suggests that we can 
cast off every sin to run this race, right? This thing that we talked about today, this whole thing in 1 Corinthians 15, it will literally change your life. It is literally makes all the difference in the world. Amen. That's right. Listen, I hope we've been helpful today. Discuss this question in your community groups. I mean, we have just scratched the surface. There are a lot of implications of the resurrection, a lot of so what. What difference does the resurrection of Christ make in our daily lives? There are more than what we've talked about. Uh, I think there will be one mentioned in the benediction that we didn't even get to today, so be listening for that. Talk about these things amongst yourselves, in your community groups, in your family, and let's continue to allow... Uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus' resurrection to make a difference in the way that we live our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this time together. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great hope that we have because Jesus has been raised from the dead. I pray that you would help us to live lives like that is true and that we would connect the dots between what you have done and the way that we live life now, even as we look forward to the day that you make all things new. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.